Welcome to the Days for Girls podcast, a show about breaking barriers for women and girls around the world. I'm your host, Jessica Williams, Chief Communications Officer at Days for Girls International. At Days for Girls, we believe in a world where periods are never a problem. We are on a mission to shatter the stigma and limitations associated with menstruation by increasing access to sustainable period products and menstrual health education for all people with periods. Today's episode is with Kia Gazahe. Kia is an experienced feminist researcher and lecturer based at the Social Anthropology Department at Addis Ababa University in Ethiopia. She has been involved in ethnographic research on a range of adolescent-related areas, including education, health, and nutrition, voice and agency, psychosocial well-being, economic empowerment, and body integrity. Her other research interests include international migration, refugee studies, gender policy, religious identity, borderland conflict, marginalization, and slavery in the contemporary world. She also contributes to policy processes, including the analysis of the Ethiopian national women's policy. She has authored several publications related to adolescence, including her recent publication on adolescent sexual and reproductive health in Ethiopia and Rwanda. She is currently an in-country qualitative researcher for Gender and Adolescence Global Evidence. Uh, The acronym for that is GAGE. And this is a project run by ODI, Overseas Development Institute. Today is a special episode in honor of World Refugee Day. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's go on to the show. Since I interview people from all over the world, I often ask this question, where are you calling in from today? Addis, from Ethiopia. For For those who don't know where Ethiopia is, it's in the Eastern part of Africa in the Horn. Okay, awesome. Are, yeah. are you originally from there? Yes. You work for Gage. And so I thought we might we, we might start out by talking about that organization. Can you tell us more about the mission of Gage? Yes. So Gage is uh, an, abri- an abbreviation for gender and adolescence global evidence. So it is the largest global study on adolescence. Uh, it follows around 20,000 girls and boys in developing countries, including Ethiopia, Rwanda, Lebanon, Jordan. Um, and it tries to understand what works to enhance adolescent capabilities in empowerment in different uh teams. So we work on uh, economic empowerment, bodily integrity, health and nutrition, including SRH and menstrual health management, um, and also uh, physical uh, uh, physical well-being and psychosocial well-being in um, other um, and uh, voice and agency. So we have this uh, six capability domains where we focus on uh, and try to understand the experience of adolescents across seven countries. Great. And it's, uh, it's a longitudinal study that uh, stays for, if I'm not mistaken, five uh, to seven years. Okay. So are you, I, I feel like this might be a stupid question, but are you, are you following the same individuals over the course of a five to seven year period? Yes. Uh, so we have what we call nodal cohorts. So they are the girls and boys that we follow throughout uh, the research period. And we started with girls of age 10 to 12, so that by the end of the research, then they will become uh, used. And, and so they will be within the age range of 17 and 19. And so we can see their development through adolescenthood. 
Okay. And one of your focuses is on migration and refugees. And in honor of World Refugee Day, I I would like to focus on this topic. Before we dive in though, can you explain the difference between a migrant and a refugee? Like what I know there's, it's a fine line, but can you kind of give us the subtle difference? So um, as as an anthropologist, I always struggle between that to give that definition, because for me, um, this is more or less a definition that was given uh, by practitioners. Um, but uh, simply speaking, a migrant is someone uh, who has the agency and who decides to move. And a refugee is uh, a person who is forced to leave their country uh, for different reasons. So it's a uh, it's more or less a question of uh, having the the decision to uh, to initiate the mobility. But I mean, um, as a, as a, I don't want to call myself a migrant scholar, but at least as an anthropologist who have been working on migration in refugee on refugees for for some time, um, I don't believe that there is that much difference unless you want uh, this categorization for uh, for for policy implementation or for program uh, implementation, yeah. Mm. So this is a very specific research focus for you. Um, why did you get into this work? Like what what made you want to focus on um, migrants and refugees, particularly um, from Ethiopian countries going to um, parts of the Middle East and Southern Europe? Yeah, um, I actually was not intending to uh, to get into this uh, study un- until I, I did a research for uh, Overseas Development Institute (ODI), and it was actually on um, on adolescents and uh, young women who lived in in a border town between Ethiopia and Sudan called Metamma. And being at the borderline, it gives you. Um, a broader picture and a clear one, how people struggle to leave the country. And it didn't make sense why people want to leave Ethiopia because I am I was born in Addis and um, I don't want to say I was one of the privileged ones, but at least I have not uh, passed through the hardship that many people go through. And, and so I was blind on that aspect of uh, our community's struggle. And, and so it, it, it was really... Um, eye-opening for me to see how many people leave the country illegally through that desert um, and the reason why they choose to leave. Um, and um, I, I, I heard the story of a girl uh, who was 19 and I was actually 19 when I started uh, doing research and I was interviewing her and she was of the same age and she was telling me of her story uh, going to the Middle East in being raped by her employers and it was very traumatizing and so I was interested to learn more and see where I can help at least I mean um, I can bring out the voice of these migrants and uh, make this issue uh, visible to those who are not aware of the hardship and difficulties migrants and refugees go through. Mm. So can you break it down for us why are people leaving Ethiopia to go to places like the Middle East? Is there a connection um, between Ethiopia and the Middle East and Southern Europe? 
Um, it's 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 a choice that they have to make based on what's available. So I mean, um, for most of the in most of the research that I've done, um, the choice of uh, the country that most people choose from Ethiopia is uh, the states uh, or Canada or Australia. But I mean, having access to that route is very difficult and also very expensive. And so the easiest one where you can uh, get um, money in a short period of time and better salary is Middle East and Sudan, Egypt, and the Mediterranean. I mean, across the Mediterranean to Europe. And Europe is usually a, um, used or intended to be used as a stepping stone for uh, a secondary migration to uh, to the states, particularly. But many. Uh, end up staying in different European countries, particularly in the Scandinavian countries and in um, in countries such as um, England and France. Uh, but um, the reason, another reason why people choose to go to Middle East is also the availability of jobs. So there is a high demand of domestic workers, and we have a long relationship of people moving to the Middle East, if not at this scale, uh, for trade or for any other reason. And um, I mean, the cultural similarity, particularly, for instance, in countries such as Yemen, and also the ease in learning Arabic makes it preferable for many girls to move to the Middle East. And we have a long history of uh, migration from here. So that is where the trend builds up. Mm-hmm. And what are the conditions like in Ethiopia that a lot of these migrants are trying to get away from? Um, it depends from where these migrants are. So in some places, um, most of uh, the migrants uh, give the reason uh, of poverty for them to leave the country. And yes, I, I mean, um, it depends on the scale of poverty you want to look at, but Almost, I can say all of them uh, say that it's it's poverty and uh, lack of um, job opportunities here in the country that forced them to leave and uh, try to have a better life in in other in another country. But we also have beyond this economic uh, reason, we also have um, political. Uh, refugees and political migrants, as we call them, uh, who flee away from Ethiopia uh, because of uh, the uh, repression in the previous region and also uh, conflicts uh, in in some parts of the country, be it ethnic or otherwise. So these are the major ones uh, people are leaving the country. Mm, That makes sense. Um, So... I, I, and again, I'm sorry. I feel like I'm asking really dumb questions, but <laughs> I am, I'm learning so much as the host of this podcast. And, um, I feel like a lot of our listeners are kind of going on a journey with me as well. And, um, and I'm sitting here thinking, why not just go to another, um, country in Africa? It seems like it would be much closer, um, and would be an easier trip than trying to go, you know, all the way yep. across and, and sometimes across the water and, and through countries yep. where there might be even more difficulty. So do you understand why? Yeah, that, that was also my question when I started studying uh, migration and refugee uh, issues. And I mean, uh, we have 
Kenya, right next to us, and we don't need a visa to go there. And, and also Uganda, which which has a good economic standing in, in East Africa. So I, I also ask the same question, but the problem is this migrants are usually from the countryside and so they don't have that information of where they should go and what they need to do to get a better uh, life and and so they are just following as I've told you it's all about having that uh, opportunity or option open for them and that is usually through uh, brokers and and it's it's only information that they can get and the brokers are need the networks to be established and most of the time the broker network is established uh, to the Middle East, to Sudan, Egypt, Libya uh, and Europe and, and also South Africa actually. That is the third route that we have where we have majority of Ethiopians um, as migrants and refugees. Uh, but I mean they are going all the way through to South Africa, passing through different African countries because they don't know how to um, to make a life in those countries. And I think it's more to do with lack of uh, information and knowledge of the opportunities that they have in the different countries and also um, the lack of network and uh, uh, jobs available in those countries that these migrants are aware of. Mm, mm, that. that- yeah, so it's almost like a, a business for a lot of these. Yes, um, yes it's actually it's an industry. We, we like to call them a migration industry because it's not a simple um, uh, economic transaction. It's not simply economic transaction that's going on here. It differs on where you're from and who you are as a person because uh, the, the, the charge that the brokers ask differs from where, whether you are Oromo, Somali, Eritrean, uh, Amhara, uh, because they know or assume they know how much you are willing to pay. And so the cost, for instance, to go from uh, from here, Ethiopia, but from the border, not from the original hometown, but from the border uh, with Sudan to Libya can go up to 6,000 per person. This is the minimum that they ask. Uh, so it's very, I mean, uh, the economic transaction that they have within the network is very much uh, like an, an industry. In Ethiopia, are a lot of the, the migrants, yeah. they, do they have to have some sort of um, uh, person helping them navigate all the different transportation and all of that stuff? Yeah, I mean, um, some migrants prefer to do it alone, but as you know, uh, the, I mean, the route is from Ethiopia through Somalia, uh, or Somalia or Djibouti to Yemen, and then to Saudi. Or you can go from here to through Sudan and Egypt, Libya, and then uh, Italy. So it's we are talking about a long journey. And we have the third one, which goes all the way uh, from Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania to. South Africa. So we, we are talking about a long journey that can take months sometimes. And so, I mean, they can take, for instance, they can travel without a broker up to some point that they are aware of, or they can be in groups and help each other in navigating through these routes. But also, I mean, the need for brokers come in when you want to avoid uh, police and other law enforcing uh, bodies. And also, I mean, for instance, if you don't know Sudan, uh, you can get lost even at the border because we are talking about 
a desert where you have no particular route to take. And uh, for instance, if you are talking about refugees, for instance, the ones who are here, Eritreans and Somalis, they can easily go up to the border here in Ethiopia. But beyond that, it's difficult for them to know where to go, how to get there. And also, in some ways, it's it's very ironic, uh, but uh, having brokers and being with a broker uh, within a broker network helps you to be safe in in uh, in some uh, cases, and so it's also a safety issue. Uh, even if we hear of uh, brokers uh, abusing migrants and uh, torturing them, it's also on the other side a safety mechanism for migrants to reach to their destination. So a lot of what you focus on is the challenges women are facing as they make these these crossings and and, and migrate uh, to other countries. What are the top challenges that you're seeing women struggle with as they make this journey? It's difficult uh, to list few of them because uh, it depends on the individual and also on where they are going and who they are, as I've said earlier. Uh, because Eritreans uh, face different, I mean, there are, there are common challenges that most migrants and refugees face, but it also differs based on who you are as Eritrean Somalis uh, or how old you are sometimes. And, and so um, it's, 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 it's really difficult to say uh, these are the challenges they face. But if I have to, I would say the first one is if they are going illegally, um, through the what we call the desert route, then uh, the most challenging one is being raped, and which is very um, sad for me to hear from the stories of these women is that they expect such kind of sexual violence, whether on the route or um, in in places where they work as because these women usually work as paids and and so they expect such kind of violence from either their employers or uh, migrants who are uh, traveling with them or brokers i mean the, the the concern of them being abused by fellow migrants is pretty much less than uh being uh facing sexual violence by brokers or their employers, but they expect it, and and so they uh, take precautions in not to get pregnant because they it's they know it's coming, and so I I, I met uh, a fourteen year old girl and her friend who took contraceptive before they left their home, and it's it's very sad to hear that for a fourteen year old to to expect to be raped and take that measure to protect herself from unwanted pregnancy. And, and the other um, challenge they face, particularly Ethiopians living in the Middle East, is uh, physical abuse and uh, violence that can go up to days by their employers uh, because they, there is no accountability mechanism in the countries, uh, in most of the countries. And uh, it's difficult to trace uh, this migrant as they go illegally and so the Ethiopian government or the embassy there cannot uh, put uh, uh, the person uh, accountable for that um, injury or days uh, and get the justice that these girls need Uh, and that is also the major challenge that we hear most of the time uh, for migrants who go to the Middle East and beyond that um, 
another challenge is uh, as, as, as women and as girls, they have the responsibility to support their families. And so um, most of the money they make uh, abroad, they send it all back home, unlike the main. Um, and, and so when they come back after, let's say, five or seven years, they have nothing here. And all that money is invested in their um, in their parents, in their family members, in their relatives, and they have nothing to show. And so, I mean, after facing that me- that much hardship and difficulty and staying abroad for that m- many, uh, for those um, years, they come back empty-handed, and they uh, they they ask the government for support. And people usually don't understand them because they see them as uh, returnees or as we call them here, diasporas. And, and so you don't expect people who have been abroad to come back empty-handed. And, and so they they face that uh, challenge of not being understood by by their community and also uh, by their families. And, and, and so they have to start from scratch when they are back home. Yeah. Oh, oh that's just, yeah, that is heartbreaking. Um, yes. Oh, your work sounds really like difficult to, it is. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to swallow. Oh my gosh. So, um, I know that you've contributed to some of the, the work, um, and the Ethiopian government, like their Ethiopian national women's policy. How do you think your, your work at gauge is making a difference for women and adolescents who I know you're specifically focused on refugees and migrants, but the research that you're doing, how is it influencing change in the country? I, I told you, I, I got into this research to bring some kind of change. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a nobody, but I, I try to uh, show people that this is a reality that we are living in. And we, these are citizens of Ethiopia and we need to support them in one way or another. And so uh, with Gage, uh, what is interesting is that usually when research is being done, we, we, we don't have a problem of uh, data or uh, understanding the reality, particularly among government bodies, but they don't focus on adolescents. And as adolescents, I mean, not just in Ethiopia, but around the world are the most uh, neglected um, categories uh, within the research and government interventions. And so it was very interesting to see how much we need to um, work on adolescents to see change within the country because they are the ones who grow up to be uh, adults and then uh, take responsibilities. And so, as I've told you earlier, we, we have different capability domains and see to uh, try to study what works and what doesn't work, but we, we are not um, taking the this the top-down approach, but we are going down to ado- the adolescents and talking to them, not just the girls and the boys, but also to their parents, to their teachers, to their community members, and see what can change and what, um, how the government or any other organization can contribute uh, to change the life of adolescents, not just uh, in relation to migration, but also in, in any aspects of their lives and make a better uh, country uh, uh, for them, uh, 
but that's how we are working and uh, with GAGE, we are engaging uh, the different ministries. We have Ministry of Health, Ministry of Education, uh, Ministry of Women and Children Affairs so that they can understand what is coming out of the research. And also we have different organizations. And as a result of the baseline studies that we did, we now have a program called Act With Her, implemented by Plan uh, Pathfinder, sorry, and CARE. Ethiopia and they uh, do awareness raising and they give lessons to girls and boys uh, or to bring social norms change and also provide some uh, uh, material support and also system change within the different um, selected uh, areas here in the country. So it's not just research that we are doing, but it also has some kind of uh, action uh, uh, research and uh, implementation of programs. With the, You mentioned of the national women policy, and uh, with that, actually, um, it was not under gauge, but I, I also work uh, with uh, an organization called Includovit, and it's, um, it's an a research organization that is based in Australia, but it has also uh, an office here in Ethiopia. And um, it's a feminist organization and it's com- uh, entirely led by women. And we have a majority of the researchers are women here. And we, we try to um, promote uh, inclusive research, not just women and girls, but also uh, issues of disability. Uh, and other marginalized groups of the community. And we got the opportunity, and I am very grateful for that opportunity to to review the national women policy here. And uh, unfortunately, the policy was formulated uh, in 1993, and it's uh, it's a very old document which which was not revised uh, until now. And and so... uh, I got the uh, honor of leading that research uh, and we did, uh, we talked to the different government organizations and also went down to the community and uh, addressed all, uh, we have here what we call districts and zones and we addressed all community members in 68 zones, in all of the zones here in in the country, and did a nationwide consultation on the policy. And what we have noticed was that the government, as well as um, other uh, stakeholders, have ignored the impact of legal framework, a strong legal framework to support the activities that they are doing to mainstream gender or to bring gender equality or to make life better for women and girls. Uh, and, and so and, and um, avoid the, the, the uh, migration that I was talking about earlier. And uh, we have we have seen that it's also very different across the country. And so there is a need for contextualizing the different um, interventions or changes that we need or we want to see within the community. Because here we are talking, when we talk about gender equality and women and girls, we are also talking about social norms, which are deeply embedded within the community and the patriarchal structure that we have in most of parts of the country. And so, uh, we are hoping for a new or uh, revised policy, which can uh, take us to a new phase of transformative uh, uh, 
a policy or legal framework for women and girls in, in the whole community uh, here in Ethiopia. Amazing work that you're doing, Kia. It, it you. really is. And it, I know it must be very hard work and, and, and a lot of the research must be difficult to read um, and to, to analyze. Um, uh, but it sounds very, very important. And so um, thank you for the work that you're doing. And thank you for, for joining us on the show. If people want to connect with you and learn more about your work, where can they go? I have mentioned earlier, most of the research that we have done is uh, with Gage and include of it. So we have the official website. Uh, they can check out both uh, organizations and research uh firm and uh, they can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. Thank you for having me. It it was a pleasure talking to you. You're welcome. And we'll put those links in the show notes. And yeah, it was a pleasure and best of luck with your continued work. And I hope that the outcomes that you want start happening soon. (laughs) Thank you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The Days for Girls podcast is produced by Days for Girls International. For show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, visit daysforgirls.org forward slash podcast. If you'd like to support the work we do on the show, leave a rating or a review wherever you listen, subscribe to the show, and share episodes on social media or with your friends. To learn more about Days for Girls and to join our global movement, please visit daysforgirls.org. Thank you for listening. See you next time.